R.I.P. Steve Reed. Stay in the rhythms with David Workman, and um, I'm here with Kieran Hebden, and we're just here to to sort of reminisce because we've both spent a lot of time with Steve over the years, and uh, it was a real shock to to us both when we found out that um, he'd passed away last week in in New York City. Um, a real shock, actually. I mean, we knew he was ill. I knew I'd, I'd spent a bit of time with him. You, you obviously spending a lot of time with him as well, and uh, it felt like he was getting better, actually. Yeah, it was kind of. I speak to him one week, and there'd be like good news about it, and then speak to him another week, he'd be having treatment again, and be kind of downhill. But it's just one of those fast, kind of aggressive cancer things, and I think, uh, yeah, it's all from the. He only found out he was sick at the end of last year, and it just happened really, really quickly. Basically, it just really. Um, I think combination of that and the chemotherapy was really, really draining on it on him as well. So yeah, it was quite a rapid, rapid thing. And he, he died peacefully and stuff. Though. And last time I spoke to him, he was very kind of at ease with the fact that he was going and things. So um, yeah, I think that that's the good thing about it. Is it didn't wasn't one of those real drawn out things. You know? Yeah, it's it's not. There's a lot of musicians who've been. It's inevitable. A lot of people dying. I mean, Guru passed away this week, which was absolutely out of the blue. Um, far too young. But um, when Steve Reed, I don't know, it really affected me deeply last week. And uh, I think it was because he was such an incredible spirit who really was interested beyond his world about music he was so honest and passionate about it all i've met so many musicians and they're great and it's brilliant but you realize that at the end of the day you know you're giving them some airtime and they're going to sell records mm -hmm. but with steve it was uh it was a way of life and i haven't met anybody like that yeah totally well, one of my good friends the first thing he said to me when i told him steve i was like oh, i've never known anyone who was so into it like, he was so into it when he played you know it was definitely like people enjoy music and get off on it but steve was really really into it like in a sort of way that i haven't yeah that you don't experience in other other people i think everybody seemed to notice that about him and seemed to notice that he was so so different to anyone you'd ever met anyone you'd ever see make music or play music and different attitude about everything so i think he's uh yeah left a huge kind of hole really because he's such a kind of unique person i think Let's play some of his tunes um, that he recorded um, actually in his later years. Um, well, the first track was one that you pulled out, which I didn't realise actually that uh, Shadow had sampled the bass line at the front of it. And tell us the story about that because it mm -hmm. wasn't cleared, but Steve was cool about it, right? Yeah, it wasn't cleared. I think Steve was a bit like, oh, this guy sampled my thing and he never asked. But I think, you know, Steve was into, was into all types of music, you know, he was never wasn't like stuck in the past in any of the ways he's not gonna sit there listening to he'd phone me up and be like oh, i've been listening to tribe called quest all morning or theo parish or something so you know he was totally into all sorts of modern music and sampling and all those things so i think you know he got it that shadow used his uh his bass a track from baseline from one of his tracks was cool with him i think I mean, to be honest with you, if I was uh, a producer and around the time the Shadow was making that music and he picked up that David Workman album, you'd probably have gone, hey, there's no point trying to clear this. This is so independent. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Well, David Workman, I think people haven't heard of so much. Yeah. He was a friend of Steve's and playing on some of the records he was doing with Steve Reed and things. And, um, but it came out on Steve's own label, uh, Mustavik Sound, and it's actually the lineup on the record is the same pretty much as the band that was playing on rhythmatism and nova and stuff like that it's a lot of the same guys so it sounds just like one of those records really. mm. well, let's play a track from his um first album that he recorded for soul soul jazz um which uh i don't know what the year was of this record actually what, what, it's what, like 2005 or 2006 yeah and uh this is before he went to domino but um it's good to hear this track again this is where he actually lived um, towards the end of his life um, in the Italian part of Switzerland around the beautiful lake of Lugano. Steve Reed.
I'm with Kieran Hebden. We're talking about Steve Reed, and uh, that was a track called Lugano from his uh, first of his albums. For well, in fact, the first album that Soul Jazz did, they re-released some of his um, earlier products, and then they actually made a proper new recording album with him with um, a great band as well. Um, had John Edwards on there and Boris Nets. Vetev, who's brilliant, and uh, a bunch of others, really, and of course Kieran on electronics. Now, how did you first come across Steve? Um, what was your sort of first connection with him? Um, I got into his music from from the Soul Jazz reissues. Actually, on they put it on the compilation, the United Sa- Sounds of mm. America or something. That mm. I got mm. it was a bit of a life changing record for me when I first heard that. Yeah, I've got it here. Yeah, I think I was like. I was just at college, I was like 19 or something, and that came out, and it was like a whole new world of music that yeah. was like my dream come true somehow. And um, I got into that, and then a few years ago, I was looking for a drummer to work with. I had this idea of doing sort of drums and electronics sort of duo thing, and I mentioned to a friend of mine in uh, Paris, and um, he managed to track Steve down. He phoned me up one day, wrote, I was like, I believe it. Steve Reed's still playing, and he's like living in Switzerland and things. And uh, Steve and I, he arranged for us to meet up at a show Steve was doing in London. And um, I met him, and we discussed the idea then, and made a plan to do the show in Paris, which was like a month later. And um, I turned up in Paris to meet him, and we played a show at um, Cartier Foundation or something like it's an art gallery place. And uh, it was amazing. It was like no like the sound check there was no rehearsal or anything the sound check was the first time we played and um we did that show and then we came back to london we played at the spitz and it was going so well we just went straight into the studio the next day recorded the first um first couple of hours we did two albums (laughs) straight away and i think from that moment something that i thought was maybe just going to be like a little sort of experiment or something i realized that whoa everything's changed my whole life's changed all the my whole understanding of music and what I was going to do musically and and Steve and I were both just beside ourselves with excitement it was really um yeah really like this we both knew that this is what we wanted to do and the last five years it's been the main main project I've been working on sort of musically the last sort of five years and I mean, like I was telling you while that track was playing we definitely um we definitely really went for it over <laughs> the last five years you know like four albums and uh traveled all over the world and stuff and I think the next tune we're about to play is Art Blake. I was, um, you know, in all these travels with uh, with Steve, we'd listen to loads and loads of music while we were on the road. And uh, it was really common for us to go into a record shop or something and buy a CD. And um, there was one day in LA with me, Steve, and my sister, and um, he pulled out this Art Blakey record, Free For All, and said to me, uh, you've got to hear this, you know, this is an absolute classic. And I didn't know, I was like, okay, and... Um, we rolled all the windows down on this like ridiculous kind of like four by four massive car we had in LA, and we had it on enormously loud. And Steve was just he was freaking out in the car. It was like in total like ecstasy. <laughs> like, and uh, yeah, seeing talking earlier about how much Steve was into music, you know, seeing him put on a record like this and just enjoy it. You know, and I think Art Blakey was a name that came up all the time when I was with him as someone that he just totally totally respected and loved and i think one of the first drummers that steve saw when he was a teenager as well that really connected with him and was just like that's what i want to do you know that's that's the real deal you know and i think he he really really respected art blake in a big way and his big influence and i think one of the reasons steve went to africa and things like that is because art blakey did it and stuff so um yeah i think it's going to be impossible for me to ever listen to this record again without thinking of steve straight away
I'm just uh, I'm just imagining every time one of those drum rolls kicks in, Steve Reed at the back of the four by four, absolutely, um, you know, like an adolescent, like a child, right? And and you were telling me that actually Steve, his first school dance, Art Blakey played in the school hall. Yeah, that, he told me that's where he first saw Art Blakey was at a school dance, and that I think he said the other band was like a kind of steel pan calypso sort of band. Wow. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it was, must have been like kind of prom night sort of thing. And then Art Blakey played and he said it was life changing, absolute mesmerizing. He like blew his head off when he heard that and said he was just like the most kind of loudest, most powerful drummer he'd ever heard. And I think, uh, yeah, Art Blakey was a bit of a god for him from then onwards. Did you ever get to talk to Steve about his time with all these legends that he, you know, he, he performed with? I mean, he told me about the time when. He was like this young 15, 16 year old drummer. Regular family, right? Um, <laughs> he was living with in New York. Um, I think his dad was like professional or something. I and mean, you know, they were they were just getting on with life, and their their kid was just really good at drums. And the word had got around Queens or wherever they were living at <laughs> the time, um, and uh, that there was this great drummer in New York. And so Barry Gordy heard about it, and he sent a car to pick him up and drove him all the way to Detroit. I think what what happened was the it was another the Motown musicians used to do these school events, right? And they used to travel around the schools doing shows. That's how they heard. And about yeah, Master and the Vandellas, the um, the drummer was really really sick, and they'd heard about Steve, and that yeah, they were like, we we, we need a drummer, and uh, you know who's the best drummer around here? They were saying in the school or something, and they were like, oh Steve, is the best. And I think that's how he ended up playing with them. Like they sent a car, whatever, picked him up. Next thing you know, he was playing with like Martha. Yeah, they took him home afterwards. I was like, I drove him all the way to Detroit. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, the story's like, I I mean, I think I've almost got his kind of history mapped out in my head. I spent a lot of time talking to him about all the stuff he'd done and kind of working it out. And because he did that and it kind of led into other things, he started playing with a lot of soul musicians. Mm. And I think people like Wilson Pickett and stuff he toured around with for a long time. And, um, and he was. At that time, though, he told me he was very much just taking whatever job was bringing him uh, bringing money in, you know. So he was playing a whole variety of music and playing on Broadway for a bit, musical and stuff. But then I think he quit it all and actually went and joined the circus for a little while because that was the best-paying gig he could get. You know, he was in the circus band doing the big drum rolls before the elephant stands on its foot. <laughs> so, you know, weird, weird kind of things like that. And then um, I think the big turning point for him... He was playing with James Brown, all these various people. Yeah, he's, he played on Popcorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, and James Brown had two drummers at the time, and he was playing, you know, Steve said one of the drummers would hold down the real solid backbeat, and the other drum would kind of freak out on top of it, and no surprise, Steve was the guy who had to freak out on, on top of it. And I think he was doing all this, and he was going to see all these guys like Coltrane and everything every night. He says he just saw all the great New York kind of jazz musicians every night. And then he just noticed that people like Art Blake and stuff, they were all going to Africa and heading off there to go and, um, you know, and coming back with a different sound. And so Steve um, decided he needed to go to Africa. And I think about 65, 66, something like that, he got on a boat and uh, just went over to Africa with his drum kit and stayed there for like three years. And um, he did his three years in Africa, like playing with whoever he could find. And he even ended up playing with Fela Kuti and some of those guys at some point. And I think studied with, uh, he says, when he first got in the band, you were only allowed to play cowbell. And they had a whole kind of training thing for musicians and they teach you all the different kind of rhythmic techniques and stuff. So Steve was there having a good time, but definitely kind of studying as well. And um, he came back from Africa. And I think very soon after he got back, he was put in prison because he wouldn't fight in Vietnam. And so I think he was in prison for a couple of years. And... Uh, then when he got out of prison, that's when he really started doing all the jazz stuff more. I think that's when he set up his own label. Uh, it's when he started, he was playing in the Sun Ra Orchestra for a bit. I think that's just kind of that period in the 70s that he was putting out the records, some of the records we've been playing today and stuff. He was very involved in the whole kind of like jazz scene. And I think uh, he was pretty angry when he got out of prison, as you can imagine. So I think he was pretty militant around then as well. And like, um, yeah, and I, th- I think he was doing all the jazz stuff, but then also started doing session work. I think uh, playing with Peggy Lee and Fats Domino and people like that, I think he was making good money doing kind of the live circuit with with people like that as well. So, yeah, it's, I think one of the differences about Steve compared to all uh, compared to lots of other jazz musicians and stuff is he wasn't just 
playing one type of music. He was actually, you know, he, he didn't see big kind of boundaries between all these different things. He saw, you know, playing jazz and soul and playing funk or whatever. That that was quite natural to him to like be playing all these different styles of music. And and I think right up until the end, I mean, that's one of the reasons I feel like I connected with him so well. Is he's so open minded. You know, he wasn't. There was no way that he was stuck in the past or anything. He was very interested in his music, moving on, developing, and embracing all these different styles and things. You know, and I, th- I think you can see that through everything he's done in his whole career from the from when he was a teenager. I think. Let's play the um, first thing that you nailed with him on vinyl, um, and this is a song that you used to open up a lot of the shows with as well. Yeah, I think uh, the first recording session we did. This is the first track we did. In, uh, call it kind of morning prayer and I think it was this track I think once we had it down that it was definitely a kind of an epiphany for me you know at least it's like whoa this is a whole other new kind of musical realm and something that I'm really just felt so excited about it and so and uh, I think we both really identified with this track and it became something that was like an opening pretty much every live show we ever did I think this was the first thing we played or at least a bit of a kind of theme from it or something and uh yeah became our kind of it you know once we heard that we both knew that this was our uh you know our mantra or something you know
great. R.I.P. Steve Reed going through some music with Kieran Hebden and uh, it's great to hear this track again. How did you work it in the studio together? Was it really literally sort of you started something, he put a beat in and then it was, how did it, did you rehearse? Did you, you know? Uh, it's just the same as the live shows. It yeah. was like, all, all the music was always based around, there'd be kind of like melodies and riffs and things that would be... That I'd, have, I'd have played Steve a little burst or whatever and we'd build something around that but the kind of compositions and tempos and things were pretty kind of freeform we decided that in the moment so if you came to the show you recognised the tunes and things but you know they were always played in a slightly kind of different way and we, we'd sit up totally opposite each other really really close so we could really see each other what was going on we'd just play in the studio and the t- leave the tape rolling and, and uh, go for it yeah it was yeah the records are exactly how things were at the shows as well. And uh, we're about to play a real exclusive that you found from a gig in 2006. Um, tell us, give us a little build up on this next track we're about to play. Um, well, yeah, 2006, Steve and I were we were touring all over and really started doing the festivals quite a lot, which was, and it was just wonderful, like having got to place in like big audiences and seeing like young people who'd never seen anything like Steve before, really like freaking out and we're doing this festival called the Green Man and um he came over to my house in the morning and we we're heading off and I just had this thought, I was like, you know, we're playing we're playing like in a big field out in the countryside on a Saturday night in England. I was like, we should be playing like rave music. You know, that should be that's the that's the t- tradition here. And um Steve was at my house and I played him uh some of Derek May's strings for life, which he hadn't heard before. I was like, check this out, I want us to do something with this tonight and i'd sampled little bits of the piano riffs and stuff into my computer beforehand so i played him a bit and he was like oh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm into that and then uh that night we were we were doing green man and it's a big show for us like a couple of thousand people and going really really well and uh i suddenly i dropped that piano riff from strings of life in and just it was one of the greatest moments i've ever had with steve like he responded like kind of full force playing like so heavy and and the crowd was just going mad, you know, they recognised the riff and everything, and it was this totally, totally, like, fantastic... One of, the, one of the highlights of my life, you know, when I think back. And luckily it was recorded, and it was filmed as well, that uh, that show, and there's a there's a documentary that was made about me and Steve around that year that we still haven't put out or done anything with, but it's got um, it's got the footage of that moment in it, and, yeah, I'll never, ever forget this, you know, it's quite a... Hearing Steve play Strings of Life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go.
some pretty wild strings of life recorded live at the Green Man Festival. And uh, in the background, it's just great to um, just find out more and more tracks that Steve performed on, like Popcorn for James Brown. And we're kind of listening to it, Kieran and I, just now. And it is the rim shot. It's the snail. I think it sounds like his symbol to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of I spend a lot of time with Steve talking to him, trying to work out trying to help him remember all the things he'd played on and stuff and he said in those days you were just doing the gigs and then you'd do like a bit of recording here and there and he wouldn't even make note of you know which sessions came out and which didn't and stuff so but uh, yeah he, he said he thinks popcorn's one of the he remembers playing at Lowe's and it's one of the ones he remembers recording so uh <laughs> someone yeah, sounds like him i wonder if someone well i mean only he would have because he never wrote this stuff down so what he recorded I'd like to know if he did any recordings for Sun Ra he performed with Sun Ra yeah he was doing all sorts with Sun Ra in the like early 70s so I mean those Sun Ra records around then are like got like just hands drawn covers and all sorts of manners so I think um, yeah I need, I need to go through them one day and see um, see if any fit into the time period and, yeah um, yeah if he can hear him on anything do, do the proper discography yeah. thing and uh, it was funny because you were telling me also I remember there was a documentary being made of him um, a while ago and it never came out so that, that, there's a load of great stuff there which um, Faye and Sarah are working on yeah like uh, yeah, there's, uh, Faye and Sarah two filmmakers who did loads of stuff with me and Steve we um, they made a whole kind of filmed us for a whole summer doing festivals and things and all the recordings and things we were doing and I guess in 2006 and um we put that some snippets and stuff were on youtube and things but there's a half hour documentary so uh yeah stuff that we just need to get out at some point and they yeah. probably filmed lots of our live stuff and uh steve and i went to africa as well and worked on a project there and that was all filmed as well so yeah when i am um, yeah just thinking over the last few years since i've known steve we really really properly documented everything and did as much recording and stuff as we could do so uh, that, that's really nice for me, you know, knowing that everything's there and, uh, you know, properly kind of documented from that period. Yeah, well, I was a bit incorrect with my um, documentation with regards to where he came from because it wasn't Queens, it was the Bronx. The Bronx, yeah. That's yeah. where he was brought up and everything back in the day. And he lived so close to, to John Coltrane and, and you know, apparently, yeah. I mean, did he tell you stories about him staying there and stuff? He used to live in the Yeah, I think, yeah, amazing musicians babysitting him and stuff. And <laughs> yeah. I think uh, Coltrane lived a few doors down from him and, yeah. uh, you know, he would they would practice together and stuff yeah. and... Apparently, Coltrane used to like practice a lot with drummers and things, and uh, yeah, he so says they used to hang out and yeah. you know go play at each other's houses and stuff. And I think uh, yeah, the time when Steve that time in New York just sounds like one of the kind of <clears throat> richest times for mm. music there's ever been. Really, mm. so much great mm. talent and in a small space, you know. And let's not forget as well that uh, he ended up um, amongst other um, great sessions playing on Miles Davis's Tutu. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and he told me that when that that was like a real blessing for him. It was at a time he was running on real like hard times. He said he couldn't even pay his um, couldn't pay for his telephone bill or his electricity at the time. And uh, Miles was trying to get in touch with him, but they couldn't phone him up. And they had to, they've got hold of him through a friend or something. He managed to bring him a message, and uh, he did the record. I think he only played on one track on the on the record but i think he then went to japan and stuff and toured with miles for a while doing some live stuff in the early 80s and things and yeah the list of musicians that steve encountered over the years is is absolutely incredible you know he did loads of work with people like weldon irving and stuff and you know i don't think there's any recordings but you know i can't, I can't even begin to imagine how much great music you know they must have um must have been going on with all those guys. Let's play the the track which uh, first brought my attention, his attention to me, or whatever, however you say it. The track which uh, blew all our brains when we first heard it. What mm. is this tune? And uh, it was Steve Reed, Lines of Judah. Thank you. 
Steve Reed, Lines of Judah, and uh, as Kieran was saying, it's really worth checking out his uh, his sleeve notes to um, a lot of those original albums that he put out because um, they're, they're they're full of some absolutely brilliant quotes, aren't they? Yeah, it's definitely get a good feel for. Uh, Steve's uh, vibe and stuff when you, Nova, when you read the back sleeves. <laughs> is it, Nova is a positive force against a conspiracy of businessmen, large record company executives, radio program directors, club owners, critics, promoters who knowingly or unknowingly control the quality, style and quantity of the music that you hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he laid it down on those sleeve notes for sure. Excellent. <laughs> Um, okay, um, what was I going to say? So yeah, and so basically we were talking about this discography and um, we're going to try and get as much information that you've got and put it up on the websites as well. Yeah, yeah, so, and um, any information that you've got um, listening right now, um, please get in touch. Now the other thing that I was going to... Um, which you know, which we're in the process of, of putting together at the moment is a sort of Steve Reed Foundation type of um, situation that I was speaking to um, Stuart from Soul Jazz about because when I was going over to the States um, recently when I visited him and he wanted to write more stuff about you know he was really keen to to get his 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 his, his words out there and um, write his journals really and wanted his um, thoughts obviously you've got a whole heap of that having toured with him for so long and one thing that struck me was how can a man with so much um, you know um, who's done so much for music and for all of us be in such a difficult place um, mm-hmm. in terms of um, in terms of health insurance and all that kind of stuff and I've, I've, as you know a lot of things are slowly changing in America with what Obama's doing and hopefully there'll be some more support but really I think there's a lot of musicians and, and artists who um, definitely um, find themselves in a lot of difficulties so I think that this experience with Steve um, has definitely um, motivated me to, to try and set up a situation where we can kind of you know create some sort of a charity for musicians like Steve who've um, who've just given so much and who ended up not really getting the support that they deserved. Yeah, totally. I, one of the things Steve and I would talk about quite a lot is we'd see uh, hear, hear stories about you know musicians that he's loved and admired all his life and hearing sad stories about their last years, you know, and especially with the medical situation in America, mm. you know, if you don't have the right it's very hard for musicians to have proper health insurance and things. You'd hear all sorts of tragic stories all the time, and about you know musicians just people losing track of them and then being in an awful way and not getting proper care and things. So yeah, it's definitely a bit of a situation. Mm. So you know, um, watch the space for all of that. Um, we'll finish off with a track. Um, it's been really great actually um, sharing this time with you, Kieran, and uh, and being able to celebrate um, just a, a small part of um, the music. It's so brilliant that you managed to to work with him um, at a really very creative time in his life with all these brilliant records on Soul Jazz and on Domino and there is all this footage that's going to be seen mm-hmm. soon and, you know, it's good. You know, he, 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 he his message got across and I think it's been great to um, to hear all the music once again. And, and we're going to finish off with a track which you've chosen. And one of the great musicians that he performed with um, quite a lot in the 70s was the, was the brilliant Arthur Blythe. Yeah, I, I always wanted him to come over to the UK. Mm-hmm. He tried to hook that up a few times. Yeah, we talked about it. Like, I think Arthur's, I think he's based in like LA or something yeah. like that. And we were trying to arrange getting him over and having them play together again, but it didn't work out mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. whatever reason. But um, yeah, Steve played on a couple of his records in the 70s, I think it is, for maybe early 80s on yeah. the India Navigation label. And uh, Steve's name crops up on quite a few kind of jazz releases around that time and um you know it's amazing just going back to who steve and his energy because i remember steve he'd come to london and we'd do an interview or something and he'd go you know this arthur Blythe record i did i was like i don't think i've got that one <laughs> and literally he'd go back to switzerland and he'd find a copy and he would send it to me yeah, by post yeah, totally. you know i would get it the next day It'd i've got be... piles of these mad cds with this scroll all yeah, over them yeah. like oh yeah yeah you gotta hear this you yeah, know? yeah 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 <laughs> and he's got such fantastic handwriting as well definitely that's that's really memorable okay well so this is uh this is our last track today um thanks kieran and um and yeah let's um let's keep his um spirit alive that will certainly keep going and uh, we'll finish off with this arthur blythe track with some killer swinging hardcore drums on it yeah. let's go thanks kieran <laughs> Thank you. 
just got you got to hear this story that I'm about the tuba. Talk, talk, tell us what um, Steve would say about the tuba. Uh, the records that Arthur Blythe was doing around here always had tuba on. He got rid of the bass player. And was like tuba, you know, this is this is the next big thing. I want to have tuba. And I think Arthur Blythe he signed this big deal with Columbia Records around the time, and you know, it was going to be like one of the next big kind of jazz guys <laughs> and everything with his major label deal. And uh, Steve, Steve was like, you know, Arthur, he had this. There was this chance that he was going to be quite a big guy and everything, but he went down the tuba route. He got obsessed with the tuba and kept putting these uh, crazy ass records out with all this tuba on and stuff. And you know they weren't really selling in big numbers or anything. And uh, Steve and I would laugh about that all the time. And Steve uh, would always refer to like going down the tuba route, you know, as being like, uh, you know, if you were going to do something way out there that definitely nobody was going to buy. <laughs> so if we recorded something particularly bizarre, we'd sit together and Steve would be like. We're definitely going down the tuba route with this one, you yeah. <laughs> know.